Hello and welcome to episode 99 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. and Nathan Fox in... I'm in Antwerp, Belgium. Sweet. And you're about to go to the Alps, is that right? Uh, actually, yeah. So I'm going to go visit a friend in Basel, Switzerland. I'm taking the train tomorrow. Uh, I'll be going down to Antwerp's ridiculously beautiful train station. It's the most beautiful building I've ever been in, in my entire life is the train station in Antwerp. And, uh, I catch a train there and I go to Brussels and I switch trains and then I go somewhere in Germany that I don't even know. And then I switch, uh, and go to Basel, Switzerland and I meet up with a friend and another friend there. And, um, yeah, we were supposed to go hiking, but the weather, uh, got in the way. The, this hike that we were going to go on is, uh, weather dependent. So that got canceled, but we're going to just, I guess, tour around Switzerland a little bit for five or six days, something like that. So what kind of weather is getting in your way? Well, I think it was going to rain and it, it's, it's high enough elevation that we could have got ourselves in trouble. This, <laughs> the friend sent me this itinerary for the hike and it was like, you, we had to rent security, like safety equipment to go on the hike. Oh. And so it's just not the type of shit that you do if there's really any weather, I guess. Got it. Okay. Or it's wow. not the type of shit that I do if there's any sort of weather. Cause yeah. I don't really feel like dying, but, uh, <laughs> It's all new Some to me. I've never, seem, <laughs> yeah. Some people do seem to have that sort of death wish, but you don't. Ah, uh, nah, not really. I mean, I take enough risks, I guess, with the bicycling drunk around town for the last week, which is what I've basically been doing. Okay. Yeah. So. And how long are you going to be there? Um, well, this is the end of a week in, in Antwerp. The way I like to travel is just go somewhere and just be there. Like really feel like I live there. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I've, I've been in Antwerp now for a week and, uh, Antwerp feels like second home to me. I have a better social life here than I do in Los Angeles, to be honest. And, um, yeah, it's been awesome. I've got uh, a delicious, uh, Belgian beer right here in front of me in my hand. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I've been loving it. Switzerland next. I have friends to see in Germany after that. And then I, I don't really know. It's all open-ended, and I still don't even have a return flight back to the U.S. Cool. Well, um, when's your class start up? you come back um, sometime. Yeah, class in San Francisco starts July 15th, and class in L.A. starts on July 18th, I think. Okay. So, yeah, I'll be back in uh, another couple of weeks. I'll be back for sure. Cool, yeah. So it sounds like you're near a road there or something. Oh, you're hearing road noise. Yeah, yeah. we're we're right on a yeah. So, so I'll, I'll apologize again to the listeners for my bad sound quality while I'm on the road. But uh, yeah, there's a tram that comes uh, back and forth out front, and uh, there's also cars and stuff coming back and forth. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I'm glad that you were able to make this happen despite your uh, travels because we do have a ton of emails uh, on the agenda today. Do you want to talk about anything before we jump into them? Uh, I guess the only news item we have is that since the last time we talked, the uh, feedback came out on the the digital LSAT pilot oh, test. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, everybody who took the digital LSAT pilot test is super disappointed uh, with the – they said that as part of your you know, reward for taking the test and doing free work for them – 
well, I guess it wasn't free work because they gave you a hundred bucks if you took mm-hmm. the test. Um, but they also were supposed to be giving you feedback on your performance. And, uh, those reports that people got were, well, I don't know. Do you want to say worthless? It's hard, you know? Yeah. No, I think they're worthless. <laughs> it was just so stupid. I mean, I don't, what was that? The way they were categorizing the questions and stuff and you couldn't even tell which question was supposed to be which type. And it just was nonsensical. Yeah. It was totally abstract. And, um, I, I feel like worthless because basically what they said was, Hey, in the game section, you got, you know, 15 out of 23, correct. Or something like that. And then they, supposedly broke it down by question type but even then they were very broad categories so it was sort of like i you know they're they're not even names that i would recognize the only ones i recognized were the terms i'd recognize would be structure or inference or something like that so then they'd say something like you got 8 out of 10 inference questions correct which um could be useful uh, you might say, oh, I'm doing better on inference questions than I am on structure questions, so I need to focus on those. But they didn't tell you which questions they considered inference questions and which questions they considered structure questions. So I think most people were just kind of like, okay, like I don't even know what you mean by this and yeah. I don't even know what this refers to. So it's just basically nothing. Well, they also didn't differentiate between questions that you attempted and questions that you didn't have time for. Yeah. So then that also taints your results pretty significantly. If yep. there's some certain type of question that you you just you didn't you missed a bunch of them because you didn't even attempt it. You didn't didn't have time for it. Yeah. Anyway, I was hoping that people that took that were going to be able to benefit like study-wise somewhat from it. Sure. But no. Nope. Anyway, um that's behind us and yeah, we have a whole ton of listener mail hey if people want to email the show they can always email us yeah yeah help at thinking com. yep that hits both of us and we will put that into our agenda uh, unless it totally sucks but most of the emails we get are pretty thoughtful so yeah thanks for writing into the show yeah so this first one is from emily i guess i'll just jump in here yeah go ahead. um she says hi nate and ben um I now understand how your listeners end up sending you a wall of text. My apologies. And this is this a, is a wall, wall of text. <laughs> yeah. If you want to skim through any of this, that's totally cool. But go ahead. Um, yeah. So I haven't read this recently. So I'm going to – let's see here. What she, what Just she read say? it fast. Yeah. I recently discovered your podcast. I too take walks, though I'm not an old man. And I love to listen to your podcast while doing so. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm glad, Emily, that you're not an old man. Regarding the LSAT – My first diagnostic was a 143. Okay, that's pretty typical. After skimming through the initial chapters of the Power Score Bibles, I am now scoring at 152. Great. Um, With her worst section being the games. I haven't really hunkered down to study, though, and we're now less than four months away from the September LSAT, which I plan to take. I remember your advice about pushing yourself with closer deadlines, so I'm not putting it off to December. I want to start submitting applications in November anyway, when I believe you can submit, quote, early decision applications. Yes, that is correct. That said, I would like to increase my score by 10 points if possible. I dream of a 170, but if only 3% of test takers are 
get a 170, I understand my odds are slim. Um, Emily seems to have a good grasp of what's going on and what she should do. Any thoughts so far? Yeah. I mean, it's, she has a very sensible perspective about this whole thing. A lot of Mm -hmm. people get married to the idea of a 170 without realizing that, yeah, that's three out of a hundred people that are going to score that. Also 143 is a very typical place to start. Mm -hmm. Um, but it wouldn't be super typical for people to go from 143 to 170. That's, that's, uh, you know, we, we see people do that, but that's the exception. Uh, yeah. Not the rule. Yeah. And when she says here, I'd like to increase my score by 10 points if possible. Um, she's obviously talking about from the 152. Yeah. And that would put her at a 162, which is totally reasonable. Um, yeah, that's even a much then, more common kind of an improvement. Mm-hmm. Even then, it's still like 19, 20 points above the 143, her initial score, which would be a, a noteworthy accomplishment. So hopefully she sure. can get to 170, but even a 162 would be great. So she says, I've been planning to self-study uh, because that would save me money. Uh, a friend of mine sent me a 16-week self-study schedule from lawschoolie.com. The schedule directs you to read through the LSAT trainer and then through the PowerScore Bibles, all while doing a number of questions from prep tests. Um, I don't know anything about that self-study program, but i sometimes I feel like they might overcomplicate things. I'm not sure. I think definitely overcomplicate things from what I've seen. I just don't, I don't know. I mean, I also don't really love the LSAT trainer. Um, I got as far as it telling you to read the question stem first on logical reasoning. And then I was like, boy, I just can't trust anything you say after that. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I, I know people do like the book, uh, but I, I just, I, I can't, I don't, I can't endorse that. So I don't know about yeah. this whole self-study schedule. Yeah. So maybe think twice about that. She continues. I wonder if I'm making some grave error in the self-study approach. All the material is in the books and the questions are right in front of me with the prep test, but should I be taking a prep course? I'm worried about spending three and a half months studying from the books and earning another 152 on the September LSAT, does a prep class really make a difference or is it all about how you learn? Um, I watched Ben's online sample class and really enjoyed it. I like your teaching style, man. Oh, thanks. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) With an exclamation point. Yeah. But I need to be discerning with my money. I just don't know if I'm selling myself way short by not taking a prep class. Yes, Uh, you are. Yeah, you are. I think that's a no brainer. We're talking about $200,000 worth of law school here. And we're talking about the whole rest of your career. And we're talking about a thousand dollars to take Ben's class. And if, if you pay a thousand dollars and it gets you two more points, that is the best thousand dollars you've ever spent. I, I, I think that is a complete no brainer. Yeah. I respect it. I, and I, and I also know that I am biased here because I also sell an online class for a thousand dollars or whatever, but it it's, uh, the reason it costs what it costs is because it's worth it. And if you, if you get two or four or six or 10 points out of that thousand dollar investment, it can literally change your life. As far as what kind of a school you get into, it can also change uh, how much you pay for law school <laughs> dramatically change how much you pay for law school. So, um, you know, I, I'm not like really telling people to max out their credit cards or anything, but 
boy, if you were ever going to spend money on like making an investment on yourself, uh, and, and yes, it will 100% make a difference. It will, you will overcome obstacles so much more quickly with some help. I suppose I could say quicker, but you will overcome obstacles quicker with some help. So uh, yeah, I don't know. It no, I agree. And obvious to me. I think, um, we're going to continue to sound biased here, but I was just talking with someone, uh, just started tutoring someone this morning actually, and they had worked through an entire Kaplan book that, that she showed me over Skype and it was huge. And granted, it's a little unfair because it's Kaplan, but you know, just even in the first 10 minutes, we were talking about things and it was sort of like, you know, you shouldn't really do that. And I'm surprised they didn't talk about this other thing. I just feel like people can spend a lot of their time um, not <laughs> approaching the test in the right way and just not practicing the most effective methods. So when I think about your class, your online class, my online class, I feel confident that people will get out of it what they need to get out of it. But I'm I'm a little hesitant about other classes, right? So this advice isn't just about classes. It's about the teacher you end up getting, which obviously this advice <laughs> uh, is good for us. But I mean, I'm even thinking about other teachers. You just have to make sure that whoever you're learning from really has their stuff together. It, she likes your style, right? She has said, mm -hmm. I like your style, man. And she, she digs it. She is, she feels like she's getting something out of it. Um, yeah, I, I don't, it, I just, it seems kind of clear to me that if she's going to spend, she, she's talking about three and a half months of her life that she's going to either study by herself or she's going to study with your help. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can, of course you can listen to the podcast for free, uh, you offer a whole bunch of free resources, Ben. I offer a whole bunch of free resources. We love to help people as much as we can, but we also have to get paid. And if you take my class, uh, I'm on your team now. Mm -hmm. And if you take Ben's class, Ben's on your team now. And mm -hmm. when you have questions, you're going to get them answered. And you're going to just, I think, get over those hurdles so much quicker. Um, I, I think you... You know, I think that thousand dollars or whatever it is, it's an investment in your long run future for sure. But it's also an investment in how much you get out of and, and how enjoyable this next three and a half month process is going to be. Yeah, you're just going to you're going to those books. People just bang their head against those books, you know, <laughs> buy yeah. the giant Kaplan book and then just slam yourself in the head with it like a hundred times. <laughs> I don't know. And Ben's going to say, well, okay, you know, there's these parts of it that are good. And there's all this rest of it that you just don't even need to look at. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I get it. I'm totally understand that people have a budget and that they don't, you know, have all the money in the world to spend. I absolutely understand that. But this I think is a really good investment to make. Yeah. She goes on. She says, while I'm writing this email, I do have some admissions questions. I graduated okay. from college almost four years ago with a 3.1. She was an English major at a state college. Um, I struggled with depression and PTSD, for which I've had a lot of therapy. Um, 
I didn't apply myself like I should have, and I gave up on a couple of classes on myself. I've been working at a solo practice law firm since my last semester of college, where I learned a lot. That's good. She knows what she's getting into. Yeah. Um, I started as an intern, worked on a number of positions, and now I'm a senior paralegal. Since therapy and working at the firm, I'm ready to apply law school, which is what I wanted to do four years ago. Okay. Um, I have changed personally, but I can't change my GPA, so I need a solid LSAT score. True. With a 150 and a 3.1, I don't think I'd receive a good scholarship from even the law schools local to Orlando, let alone get into one of my dream schools, Florida State, Northeastern. I'm not sure a 160 would get me into the dream schools, but it's always worth a try. Um, how can I stick out when I'm yet another applicant with paralegal experience? <laughs> Get a better LSAT score. Yeah, that's it. Go back to <laughs> so this goes back to that thousand dollar investment. That's your best investment of time and money, really. That's, that's the point. easiest way to move the needle. I mean, because there's just there's a thousand people like you or ten thousand people like you with pretty much exactly one fifty three point one paralegal want to go to law school. There's a lot of people dreaming that, like that. Mm-hmm. You change that to a 160 instead of a 150, and all of a sudden you start getting into, you know, these dream schools. You also start getting these huge scholarship offers. And yeah, there's nothing you can do about the 3.1. That's in the past, but there's a lot you can do about the 150. I would also say that um, writing a personal statement about your experiences can be useful because it will help explain the GPA indirectly. Um, I think these overcome narratives are pretty overused and can come across a little trite and insincere. But if you have something to say about your experience and it's a sincere thought or you know message that you want to share with the application uh, reviewers, then I think I think it would be good because it would help explain your GPA as well. Yeah. Also, they give a shit if you get a one sixty. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, is that, hard, to is that too harsh? Am I being an asshole? No, you're I not. Just, I think that's that's. Uh, it makes everything else come together. Like if you have a high LSAT score and a challenging background, and you try to explain that background, then they believe that it was challenging, and that you really, I don't know. That deep inside you have what it takes. If you have a low LSAT right. score and a challenging background, the challenging background just starts, starts to sound like an excuse, right? Well, yeah, and it's and it's for not failure. Yeah, it's not that they feel they're not like oh you're lying, but yeah. they are like oh yeah, but we have a, we have a couple dozen of you for one spot, and. Your story, you know, it can be really heartrending. They can just totally, they can buy it. And I don't know, they're probably sitting there at their desk crying, you know, and boy, they feel sorry for you. But they also feel sorry for the other 20 people that have the same story as you. And, yeah. or, you know, similar hard times. And the way you can really stand out is to get a better LSAT score. You, mm -hmm. they don't have that many people with a 160 and the same story. So with the 160, now you're in the conversation and then you show them the story and then they go, well, Hey, 
that 3.1 and oh yeah, I look, they look a little closer at the transcript and they see, Oh, okay. This one semester, you know, this is where she said she has the depression and the PTSD and she gave up on classes and we can see these F's on her record. And okay. If we, but if we, if we back those out of her GPA, then it would actually have been a 3.5 and they're going to be way more willing to do that when they see your 160. Mm-hmm. If they see the 150, 150 and 3.1, that's a really good match. <laughs> like those go hand in hand very frequently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, for you to say, oh, the 3.1 is because of depression and PTSD, but I also have a 150, they go, hey, people with 150s get 3.1s really commonly. Yep. Anyway. No, I agree. She goes on. She says, how should I write my addendum when I don't have a good reason for doing poorly in college? Well, wait, I think you do have a good reason, right? Yeah, go on. Wouldn't mental illness just scare an admissions officer away or sound like a bad excuse? Well, this is kind of what we were just talking about. A good LSAT score is going to make it – So, I mean people deal with mental illness. So I don't think it's going to scare them away. I think they've seen this before. I think what they're most concerned about is where are you at now and – um, what kind of track record have you established for yourself? You've been working at a firm for four years. Uh, you've shown progress. If you can show that in your personal statement or at least in your resume some way, um, they're going to say, hey, she had this challenge. She's overcome it and she has a track record of overcoming it, right? It's not like, oh, I just overcame it now <laughs> yeah. and I'm ready. Like you have something to show for it and I think that that's going to pay off. So. Yeah, I think the letters of rec are going to be really powerful there. If you started as an intern and then worked your way up, and now you're the senior paralegal, you know, you're going to get, you're going to have letters of rec that also um, show that same progression. But yeah, you, it's, it, it's just you have to show them that you have the horsepower. You have to show them that you have like the cognitive ability and the work ethic. And the best way, the easiest way to show them, I mean, I know it's like, it's easy for me to say that this is an easy way, but it's the easiest way to sell it is to show them a 160. Mm -hmm. If you show them a 160, they're going to believe you. If you show them a 150, they're not. Yeah. Yeah. Last thought, she says, um, is learning to live and be successful in your life when you have PTSD a good theme for a personal statement or is it the worst idea ever? Uh, Just to reiterate what I said before, I think you just have to be cautious of the fact that they're very skeptical readers. And so when you write, you want to make sure you really have something to say about it and you're not just – you know, trying to sound like a victim, as you say, uh, I wouldn't get into any details or wallow, wallow in being a victim, but it is an important part of why I really want to study the law. In that case, uh, great. Have something to say, say it. Uh, I think they'll take you seriously, especially as Nathan is saying, if you have a high <laughs> LSAT score. Yeah. Telling, I like, I really like the idea of just telling the truth. I mean, if this is why you want to study the law, then you should say that because it'll make whatever law schools accept you, it'll make them a better fit. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, if they don't like people with mental illness, then you don't want to go there. So you can go ahead and say that you've had the PTSD and, but yeah, you want to be also selling yourself. So you want to show how you've overcome it. 
right? The whole point is you supp- you're supposed to be putting your best foot forward here. That's what everyone else is doing. So you need to put your best foot forward. Mm-hmm. And if this is really why you want to go to law school and you're passionate about it and you can demonstrate that you're passionate about it, then I don't see anything wrong with using that as a theme for a personal statement. Yeah. But you, you, you also can't think that that's going to be a golden ticket that's going to overcome the 150 because it's just, you're going nowhere with the 150 and you can go so many different places with the 160. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. You want to take the next one? Yeah. Thanks Emily for writing in. Good luck. Keep us posted. Um, give us an update, please. Okay. Next one. Hey guys, I'm about to start my junior year. So I'm about to start the studying process and I'm about to start on studying. I took an old LSAT that was proctored by Kaplan my freshman year. I hadn't prepared and was a little hungover, so it wasn't my best mental shape, but I ended up getting a 164. Whoa. I did worst on the reading comprehension by a large margin, but I got a perfect score on the reading comprehension on the SAT, which was like a year prior to when I took that exam. So I'm not sure why I fell off there so much. I talked to an advisor and they said that for my score range, a class probably won't help me much and that I should just self-study. I've always been great at test taking and critical thinking, so I've always planned on applying to a T14. So that's my goal. What do you guys think? Ben, you want to start there? Yeah. So in general, the higher you're scoring, uh, the more that private tutoring makes sense and less that a class would make sense because... Um, more of the class time will be not as useful to you, right? But I definitely have a lot of people who are scoring in the mid-160s who take the class. So I I don't know that I would rule that out entirely. At that point, I'd really be deciding on whether it makes sense to spend the money to get a private tutor versus to spend less and just get a class. Um, It also really depends which class you take. I mean, I... If the advisor is saying, hey, you got a 164 on your diagnostic, so don't take a Kaplan class, that might make sense. That makes a lot of sense sense because their instructor minimum score is a 90th percentile on an unofficial test, or at least it was a couple (laughs) years ago, and that's a 164. So your instructor may have scored a 164 uh, on an unofficial Kaplan proctored exam. I'm happy for any updates if anyone at Kaplan knows otherwise. But the last time I checked, that was the case. So, yeah, I don't know that a class would necessarily help. Yeah, I mean, Kaplan a bazillion years ago hired me as an LSAT teacher for like two months because and they hired me on the basis of a self-proctored practice test. Oh, that's exciting. They gave me the test and I sat in a room and I I like timed I did it like timed it myself and took the test. So (laughs) (laughs) this was in Boston like a million years ago. But I I just was it forty minutes or thirty five? I can't remember. Yeah, it's it. (laughs) I would say that said, I mean, I think this law school advisor is giving incomplete advice for sure. if you take my class and you start as a at a one sixty four, that means you're the star of my class, and you're going to get basically special attention from me. I love speak. I love teaching to the top of the class. I mean, I, I, I 
feel like I have more to say to people who are starting at that level. If you're starting mm-hmm. at a 164, we could talk all night about the LSAT and not get bored. Mm-hmm. It's my special interest. You know, I, <laughs> it's like, I, I, you're, you're actually in a better position to get more out of me, the higher you are when you start. Yeah. So uh, if, if you started with a 164 in my class, I'd be like, perfect. Now, if you start with a 174 in my class, then I might be like, boy, you're going to be kind of bored on a lot of this stuff. Yeah. But at 164, I mean, you're missing like 30 questions, right? Or something yeah. like that. And there's, you got a lot. We got, we got a lot to talk about if you've got a 164. So you, you also have to just be careful not to get um, too overconfident, right? Like sometimes, um, sometimes I think when people are doing really well, they're asking really good questions and really paying attention. But sometimes they're like on their phone a little too soon, right? They say, oh, I got this question right, so I understand it, yada, yada. Yeah, but then right. you ask them a question about it, and even though they're doing pretty well, maybe even compared to the people sitting around them, they still don't know some things, which is why they're still getting several questions wrong. And even though they got that question right, they didn't know why another answer was wrong or they had the wrong reason for why it was wrong. And so you just got to be cautious of that. But otherwise, yeah, there's a lot you can learn. Yeah, with a 164, I mean, you should be able to improve by 10 points from there, right? If that's really a cold diagnostic, I would then expect that you should be able to get into the 170s pretty comfortably. To get into the 170s, especially to get into the mid-170s, you're you're just not missing very many questions at all. Yeah. And there's also times where, especially on this cold 164, I mean, definitely whoever this correspondent is, I don't know if we can say a name or not. Oh, we can. I, it doesn't say we can't, so I guess we can. This is uh, Jack. Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack, uh, I'm sure, got a lot of these questions right for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And so... You could, yeah, you can definitely benefit. Even if you got it right, you should probably listen to my explanation because you totally could have just kind of accidentally got it right. Yep. Um, but anyway, I do think you can benefit from a class. I know you would benefit from my class. I know you would benefit from Ben's class. If you can find another high quality class in your area, you'd probably benefit from that. So you really should. I mean, you should swing for the fences when you're, when you're starting that high. You should you should swing for the fences. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, continuing on. Also, in regards to the Harvard news, should I also take the GRE? Is there a goal number where you'd say that if I get X score on my first diagnostic, then it would be worth it to study for the GRE and take both of them? Um, what do you think? My gut reaction is no, just focus on the LSAT, knock it out of the park because that's going to help you with Harvard, but it's also going to help you with all the other schools. And I think Anne's point that those people who take the LSAT look like they're more serious about actually going to law school um, is a good one. Right. If you take the GRE yeah. as well, it's kind of like, well, wait, are you kind of hedging your bets anyways? I don't know. I mean, it just my main concern would be the time. So if you can focus solely on the LSAT and even get two more points or one more point than you would have, um, 
it seems like that's going to do more for you than having an extra score in there that's from the GRE. Yeah, I mean, also, like Anne, Anne made, the I think, the best point about it, which was just, if you're only applying to Harvard, you're stupid anyway. Sure. And this is, the GRE is only good if you're applying to Harvard. Mm-hmm. So what are you doing? It's a it's a waste of time. There's no reason to have Harvard be your like be all end all number one law school. Yeah. Um, Stanford and Yale are at least as good, and you could probably toss off half a dozen other schools that are really reasonably just as good. So yeah, I don't I don't see the GRE making any sense right now for law school applicants. Uh. Again, self-serving advice, but uh, I think it's nonetheless true. Also, if you all feel like getting a little sidetracked, I'm graduating a semester early and have been thinking about what to do between that that December, that's December 2018, and the August, that's August 2019, I'll be starting law school. So if you all have any suggestions you want to throw out there, that would be cool. I'm a huge fun, fan of the podcast, and it would be great to get on the show or even just get an email response with some advice. Thanks a ton. And that is Jack. Ben, what do you think Jack should do for his uh, gap year? Um, I want him to write a book. Wow. About what? Uh, I don't know. Whatever he's good at. That's a good chunk of time. You could, you know, I know the traditional answer would be here like, hey, go travel, experience the world. I think you could do both. But I think the traveling thing is um, is uh, something that a lot of people do, and it, I don't think I don't have any problem with that. But I think if he sat down and wrote like a, a forty page book or something on something he knows, that'd be pretty cool. Then try to sell it on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, forty pages is not really a book. Well, That's I'm like trying to make it easy <laughs> to get into it. <laughs> Okay, I want him to write a book too, but I also want him to travel. So okay. I want him to travel. Yeah. Yes. There's what better to do while you're traveling? You're going to be on planes and trains and sitting in airports and sitting in cafes all around the world. So yeah, I, I definitely want you to travel, and I definitely want you to uh, write a book. Both of those. Yeah. I do not want you to work in a law firm. I do not want you to get an internship. I do not want you to take one of those pre-law school classes. Oh, yeah. Oh, I definitely want you to travel and write a book. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. Thanks, Jack. All right. The next one is from Sharon Peters. Hey, guys. Love the show. For some time, I was one of those unfortunates that had consistently finished the LR section in under 35 minutes only to get somewhere from 15 to 20 right per section. Thanks to Nate's advice in particular, I think I've progressed by most recently doing a section, only getting 18 or so correct, but doing so out of the 18 questions seen. Wow. So he's getting almost all or all of the ones he's doing correct. Maybe he's picking up a couple of the ones that he's guessing, but his accuracy rate is very high. That's all. She. It's Sharon. But Sharon. yeah, I agree with Whoa, you. Whoa, wait, yeah. hold on. I think I think this is a fake name, and I seem to remember the person who sent this was actually he. Oh, okay. All right. I don't know okay. if that's right. I just I, this is, that's in the back of my mind. But anyways, okay. I think you're probably right. Yeah. He she. 
Sharon Wilkaishi. Between these two extremes, I was completing fewer and fewer problems with an inverse increase in my accuracy rate. For example, 17 out of 20 seen. I know you guys are proponents of single sections followed by deep review. I don't know. if we, Have we ever called it deep review? That's pretty deep. Uh, I probably have. I, 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 don't, I don't hate it. Oh, I don't hate it. That's a good idea. Deep. Okay. I am too. Hold on. <laughs> Great. But let's say I laughed at that too. Like, <laughs> thanks for thanks for chiming in with your expert opinion. <laughs> um, but let's say I hypothetically understand all aspects of the question that gave me difficulty in a particular section. Does this translate to an improvement in my abilities in the moment, in the next time section, or must I do something more to internalize, habitualize, and grow? the deficient skills. Um, okay. So wait, I think what Sharon is asking here is if he or she, um, reviews a a section and understands everything from that section after reviewing it, does Sharon need to do anything else to put those lessons learned, so to speak, into the next section. Is that what Sharon's asking here, do you think? Well, yeah, because then she gives some examples. Oh, I always end too soon. Okay, what does she say? Such as doing these particularly troublesome problems over and over, similar to a useful approach for games improvements, i.e. rote repetition. Oh, I don't know why you used i.e. Knock it (laughs) off. What usefulness does a particularly difficult LR problem have in practice terms after I've thoroughly reviewed it? I feel it has additional growth value, growth value, but I'm unsure about how to extract it. Um, so I, I suggest that people flag questions that they got wrong, uh, review them, of course, thoroughly, understand them, go on to the next section, and then if they have time someday and they're don't have time to do a 35 minute section. If they are just looking for something short to do to go back and redo some of those hard questions and see if they still get them right. Because sometimes people go back and they do them again and they get them wrong, which to me suggests that they either didn't learn what they should have learned the first time or they forgot but at the same time, you're going to see a lot of similar problems going forward. Um, that said, I do think there is valuable value in occasionally going back and redoing them, not just reviewing them. Sometimes I think people review them in the sense that they look at the problem, they read it again, they see what they chose the first time, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. No, no. Like you need to circle all the answers or something, not cover them up with your hand so you don't know what you chose, and then do it again. So it's just like – you don't have any clues as to what you chose before or whatnot. So that's what I would suggest. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't even really have people go back. I, I feel like there's so many questions. We have 80 practice tests to do. Um, I want people generally to review uh, more deeply <laughs> uh, 
when they review. I think people usually shortchange it on the first time through. Yeah. Um, I think that if you really do understand it, then I don't really care if you ever go back to it. That's just my two cents. Yeah. Um, I guess one of the reasons I prefer it just to, uh, elaborate on this a little bit more is that when you're, when you have a little pocket of time and you don't really have time to do a 35 minute section, you have 15 minutes or something. I think it can be a good use of time because you're effectively cherry picking questions that were hard for you in the past, as opposed to a random set of questions that may include a bunch of easy ones for you. So I feel like yeah. it's a good use of time in that sense. But um, as long as you're reviewing, I think we can agree on this, then you will be learning things and taking them into the next sections just naturally too. Yeah, I'm I'm fine with it. I, I don't think you need to do it. I really don't think you need to do it over and over. Like – on games, I think maybe doing it over and over makes sense because you're sort of training these pathways in your brain to make the connections. Yeah. And you're you're getting kind of tuned in to the types of connections that are likely to recur on the games. Sure. Uh, but on logical reasoning, I feel like the the fourth time that you do the same LR question, it's guaranteed that you're just going to remember the answer. Oh, so, yeah. So just to clarify, I'm saying to go back and maybe redo a question once. Yeah, because it just says over and over here. And I would yeah. say no. I, no. I don't think over and over. Maybe over, but not over and over. Yeah. And even with the games, you have to be careful because um, a lot of times people will like to do games over and over. And you have to put time in between those repeats. Otherwise, like you said, you're just going to remember and it's not really stretching you, right? So if it was a really hard game for you, then maybe you should do it once after watching a video explanation or watching us talk about it in class or whatever um, and then wait a little bit uh, and then do it again. Otherwise, you're just going to kind of go off of your memory if it was uh, easier, then maybe you're never doing it again, or maybe you feel like you need to do it again, but don't do it for a while so that you can kind of forget it. I, th- I think there's value in that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Cool. Um, anything else for Sharon? Nope. I think that's good. Thanks, Sharon. Yeah. Hey, guys. I've been spending a lot of time practicing logic games via some of the drills in the logic games Bible. I can usually get the correct answers to almost all of the questions, though I haven't set any time restrictions on myself yet. Yeah, well, you shouldn't, because you should really not time yourself, except for if you're doing a a section. Um, I wouldn't ever time myself in the Logic Games Bible. Would you, Ben? Uh, I wouldn't use the Logic Games Bible. Yeah, I wouldn't either. (laughs) Um, However... I'm finding that after looking through the explanations that the Logic Games Bible gives for each game, I find that my setup is often incomplete in comparison to theirs, and as a result, I usually miss a few key inferences. Furthermore, I sometimes arrive at my answers through a different line of reasoning than is laid out in the book. My question then is, should I attempt to emulate the setup and reasoning that the Bible uses as much as possible, i.e., Will understanding the games in the way they present them help me in the long run? Or should I simply set up the game to the best of my ability regardless of if there are a few holes, 
and hack through each game using a combination of my somewhat incomplete setup and my own intuition. Love the podcast, guys. Thanks a lot. Ryan. Um, okay, so I think there is value in trying to understand what someone else is doing and what you might have missed. I think that he should attempt to hack through it on his own first. But after he does that, he should go back and try to figure out what he missed and what he could have done better. Like his either or here sounds to me like it's almost like he would never learn from them. There's like an order here. You got to hack through it on your own, make mistakes, have holes, but then learn what you should have filled in after the fact and then try to redo it better. Yeah, I I think, right, so it's a false dichotomy, I guess. I mean, I, like, I think both is the answer. Yeah. Um, I also just want to point out here what I think is a pretty major flaw of the Logic Games Bible and also almost all other prep materials that I've ever seen, mm. especially as, as it relates to the Logic Games, is that they make it seem as if this is the solution. Yeah, yeah. And there's just no such thing on the games. There, You have to improvise. You have to be open to different solutions. It is not possible to make every single inference. If I did the games, I guarantee there's going to be times where the Power Score Logic Games Bible is going to make inferences that I wouldn't even have made. But that doesn't mean that they did it better. They're They're like sort of showing this, I don't know, it's like this platonic, like, perfect they're trying to show this like perfect solution but if you don't make the all those steps then you're not going to make the the you're not going to have the same exact perfect solution and so here we get ryan thinking that his solution or his his setup is incomplete i don't think his 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 setup is incomplete necessarily it's just a different setup well, it, see, that's the thing is it could be, right? Like there could have been some big obvious inference or maybe it's not even obvious. Maybe there's some inference that he should have made that he didn't make and there would have been a lot of value in making that inference and it's reasonable enough to expect someone to do so. There are other cases where they're making inferences where most people didn't make them and it wasn't necessary to make them, especially right. in the game's Bible. I'm thinking right now of all their stupid not rules – I actually go out of my way to not make those inferences. I feel like they clutter up the diagram and make things harder to find rather than easier. And so if he's looking at those and saying, oh, I didn't make those inferences, I better fill out my diagram and do that, then I'd say, no, actually, you want to go in the opposite direction. I imagine there are some inferences, though, he's like, I didn't realize, I didn't take the time to figure out that K has to be in the first group. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, everyone really should have just sat there and thought about that and made that inference. And if you didn't, no problem. That's part of the learning process. But think about what steps you didn't take to get there, right? Yeah. Instead of like should have, I think you should think about it in terms of could have. Right. Just to, to see, oh, well, here are the steps they took and here's where, you know, they did make this one inference and boy, that would have been helpful. And that's an inference that I could have made. Yeah. Well, I think some inferences are direct consequences of thing steps that they should right. have taken. 
And so then I would say some inferences, yeah, are like, yeah, you probably should have. Yeah. And some are like you said, well, I could have done that. And a lot of people are saying, oh, I didn't do that, but I realized that later. Um, and that's not such a yeah. big deal. My sense that I get here is just that Ryan's getting discouraged and feeling like, oh, I, you know, I suck at this because I didn't make every single inference and make every single step and I should have had this solution. Mm -hmm. And instead it's like, no, they did it. You did it your way. They did it their way. You made some inferences. They made some inferences. And yeah, there were, see, here are a few steps that were possible. And some of them, you're right. Some of them are like, oh shit. Wow. Yeah. That one I should have gotten to. Mm-hmm. But other ones, it's going to be like, okay, yeah, you could have gone this way and you could have also learned this about the game. And so here was another possible solution. But I mean, I there are games that I have taught in class for seven years or whatever. And I, I, I sometimes make certain inferences and sometimes don't make certain inferences on that exact same game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's i just don't want people to be thinking that there's like this magic formula and this perfect setup it's more just like well what you know what what connections did you make today how far did you get today and yeah there there sometimes you you might make a a better inference and sometimes you might kind of not make quite all of them but it's not cuz a lot of times not they're not even necessary mhm mm yeah Anyways, I don't I I don't want people to lose the um the the improvisation part. Yes, and I agree, and that's the the problem that they're running into when they get into these quote weird games, right? Cuz they've totally let go of everything and they're now just following the system that they've been given. Well, when we have these stupid systems with all of their stupid semantics and like stupid categorizations of game types and stuff, then people think that there's a magic formula Yep. and they think that they're learning recipes, but you're not supposed to be, it's not learning recipes. It's learning like these principles, you're learning yeah. tools Yeah. and you use those tools to improvise a solution. Yeah. And you also invent brand new tools on the fly, right? They're, you have to be open to hitting this like knuckleball that's coming at you. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I just, whatever you're doing, I mean, I don't think you need to be judging yourself about looking at someone else's perfect solution and thinking, Oh, I, you know, that was what I really should have done. Yeah. I think you need to just sort of like say, okay, wow, here's what they did. And that all seems pretty good. And yeah, I mean, maybe you can adopt some of that next time, but it's, it's certainly not like, because he's he uses the word emulate. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I don't, that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, it's it's not you're not supposed to be trying to exactly mirror like replicate someone else's setup. You're supposed to just be learning tools and then applying those tools. Yep. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, thanks very much, Ryan. Okay. Hey guys, I've reached out before with a few questions and just have a final one before game day next Monday. Uh-oh, it's going to be added. <laughs> <laughs> I've taken 27 timed exams since the end of March. Whoa. That's a lot. That is a lot. What are people doing? Why are they doing so many tests? I don't know. Maybe Eric is unemployed. 
I mean, I really don't see how you can do that unless you're unemployed or lightly. Even so, even so, I mean, this was 27 exams in April and May. April, May, first week of June. Yep. Yeah. So 27 tests in nine weeks or 10 weeks. Three exams a week. That's a lot. I mean, it's not impossible, but it's, I mean, it's, it's certainly possible to do those, that many exams. Yeah. I just don't think you're getting everything out of those exams that you possibly could. I think it's inefficient to do that many exams. Yeah. Unless you're already scoring in the mid one seventies and thus don't have much to questions. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. So most people should be taking just FYI one exam a week if that, uh, and sometimes maybe two, but again, that really depends on your schedule and how much time you have to review and how much you get out of your review once you're done reviewing and how many you're getting wrong. The more you're getting yeah. wrong, the fewer tests you should be taking. Right. If you did, if you did one section a day, you'd be doing, you know, one and three quarters tests per week. Yeah. And I think that's, that's totally reasonable. I, I think that's fine. It, but even then, right, it's like you do you do one section a day. You don't miss very many questions. If you do miss very many questions, then you're just going way too fast and, and you just got to slow down and stop making stupid mistakes. Yeah. But you do one section a day and you really dig in and you really review um, the ones you've missed. And that's civilized. And you can do you can do that. That's less than two tests per week. But um, here... Eric is doing three tests per week and boy, that's a lot. Well, so I just, I'm skeptical that he's actually getting as much out of each test as he could. Yeah. One thing I want to clarify here is when you're talking about doing time, 35 minute sections and you're saying, Hey, yep. that's one, almost two tests a week, one and a half, whatever. Um, it sounds like Eric is doing literally three timed tests a week plus whatever else he may have on his agenda right and so that's even oh then that's crazy. that's absolutely crazy that's just now you're insane yeah. i mean that that's you're going to drive yourself insane um that is not a good plan so he goes on a common trend i've noticed on the lr sections is that i almost always probably 9 times out of 10 miss the quote the argument proceeds by questions i just can't seem to get a grip on them this is a question type that I don't think I, has ever been discussed on previous podcasts. It mm. has. <laughs> <laughs> we did almost the entire June 2007 test, all the logical reasoning questions, and some of those were uh, strategy of argumentation questions. So, yeah we, yeah, we have talked about it before. But anyway. No worries. Do yeah. you guys approach these questions with a specific strategy in mind? Mm-hmm. Yes. Generally, when I approach these, I feel I have a thorough understanding of the argument, but then I find myself dancing between three or four of the answer choices. Whoa, three or four? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so he clearly yeah. doesn't have a solid strategy here. Sorry, it's a little we late. We can definitely talk about this type of question. It's not as hard as you think it is. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I guess... Well, let's just talk first. I mean, what's your plan? Because I know you have a plan, Ben. So what is your plan if you see a question that says the argument proceeds by blank? Yeah. So uh, 
as you know, Nathan, I wouldn't even know it's that type of question until I got to it. Right. But once I got there, I should have a good understanding of the argument, and it would be an argument because when it says the argument proceeds by, it means you just read an argument. And that means there are premises, there are or at least one premise, there's a conclusion, there's something that the author is trying to prove, and – I might even at this point have an idea of whether I think it's a good or bad argument. I might, you know, I'd have some idea, right? At this point, though, I'd say to myself, oh, okay, so this is a reasoning question. You call it a, what, strategy of argumentation? Is that right? Um, yeah, I think the makers of the test call it a strategy of argumentation question. Cool. So um, I call it a reasoning question, but that, that doesn't matter. I would That's just, fine. Yeah. yeah, I would just say to myself, okay, this is a reasoning question, therefore – I need to know what kind of reasoning the author used to get to her conclusion. In other words, how did this author go about trying to prove her main point? And uh, I will go back and look at the argument if I don't have that clear in my mind, although I should at that point. But if I don't, I'll look at it again and I'll say, okay, what's going on here? And I will describe the reasoning in my own words. And they're very simple. They're not – I'm not using the LSAT language here. I'm just saying something like, oh, the argument – the author seems to be eliminating two possible – or two possibilities to get to her conclusion about a third possibility or the author is using like if-then statements here, conditional reasoning <laughs> to get to the conclusion or whatever. I will just – I will come up with my own description of what's going on. And then I will go into the answers. And then when I'm in the answers, I'm going to ask myself one question as I read each answer. Does this describe exactly what's happening in the passage word by word? And I will often break these answer choices into their separate parts. And so the first part of the answer might say the author rejects the opinion – and I might just stop right there and be like, wait a sec. There's no opinion in this argument that the author is rejecting. Therefore, this is not happening. Thus, this is wrong. So you don't need to read the whole answer necessarily. You do need to read the whole answer right. of whatever one you choose. But like each of these answer choices is a description of what's happening and if any part of that description is inaccurate, is not happening in the passage, then it's wrong. And I move on. So when he says he's often dancing between three or four answer choices, my sense is that he's reading the answer like very holistically, just kind of looking at it right. from a, a very high level and then saying, yeah, I could kind of get yeah. that to fit into this what's going on here as opposed to reading it word yeah. by word and saying that word sucks. I'm out of here. Yeah. Yeah. I think you just nailed it right there. I, I think – what he maybe isn't understanding is that this is a variant on a must be true question. Yep. And that it's just, it's in that family, if you will, of, of questions. And it's like any part of that answer can make the answer just immediately wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I love, wow, I never thought about that before, but if you're thinking about these answer choices holistically, like comparing the entire answer to an, an another entire answer, um, that's definitely not the way to do it. The way to do it is to just be going in and murdering answer choices. I mean, the fact that he says that he, 
he has three or four of the answer choices is like you're yeah fundamentally not doing the question the right way or the not you're not doing it the easiest way yeah um you should be going in i like ben what you said about breaking it into parts i think that's a helpful way to think about it mm-hmm. um but i would be specifically looking to just hey if any part of this answer is wrong then the answer is wrong yeah and We've talked about this a lot before, I'm sure, on the show that, you know, we're not going into the answer choices hoping that the answer, that each answer is right. We're not trying to make an answer be the answer. Mm-hmm. We're going in with a presumption that each answer is wrong 80% of the time. Each answer is wrong. And so we're just going in looking for a reason to get rid of an answer. Mm-hmm. And so we would never be doing this like holistic analysis of, well, on the whole, yeah, it does a pretty decent job. No, 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 <laughs> no. Yeah. It's like a must be true question. It either is or it is not perfectly justified by the, by the argument that you were given. Mm-hmm. It either exactly describes the argument or it doesn't. Yeah. And it, I, I guess the other thing is depending on the exact question and depending on comparing all the answer choices to one another, you don't even have to describe the entire argument, right? Mm-hmm. When it says the argument proceeds by, it's not like the correct answer has to correctly describe the totality of the argument. Yeah. All the argu- all the answer has to do to be right is to correctly describe something that the argument did without going at all overboard, without at all misdescribing the, the uh, argument. Yeah. So if the argument used this complicated uh, analogy to evaluate two theories and then proposed a third hybrid theory, the correct answer could t- just say uh, the argument used an analogy. Yeah. Cause the argument did use an analogy. Yeah. Or if it said the argument um, propo- uh, the argument described two opposing theories. That could also be the answer. Or if it said the argument proposed a hybrid between two theories, that could also be the answer. Yeah. But it just can't misdescribe the argument. It can't have any elements that are more than or different from the given argument. Yeah. So I think maybe that's, I mean, that's he has to be missing that bit, right? Mm-hmm. If he's got three or four answers that he thinks are contenders, then he's clearly not treating it enough like it must be true. Mm-hmm. And so he needs to get a little more um, murderous when he goes into the answer choices. Yeah. I think this, what you're talking about kind of illustrates just a general principle for the test. And that is, look, incomplete answers are not ideal. If you can have a complete answer versus an incomplete one, then I want the complete one. But incomplete answers are much better than inaccurate answers. Inaccurate answers are dead right away. Incomplete answers are maybe less ideal than a complete one. But if you don't have that there, then this incomplete answer is going to be totally fine. Incompleteness is a less serious sin than inaccuracy. This is fucking amazing, dude. This is episode 99 of the show, and I'm learning things about the LSAT. Cool. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's, you know, the nerd cast. You <laughs> rename it 
the nerd cast. But um, yeah, no, I mean, that's a really good way of thinking about it. I, and that's true of must be trues generally. Yeah. With it, incompleteness is not that bad of a crime. Incompleteness is not a bad sin. Mm-hmm. Inaccuracy is a really bad sin. Mm-hmm. Right? We're not, yeah. we're, as a lawyer, as an officer of the court, we are not going to be misdescribing something that the, you know, we're not going to be misdescribing this document. Mm-hmm. We might not fully describe the document sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but we are definitely not going to misdescribe the documents. Yeah. Yeah. So he well, goes, I think we might have sorted it out. Yeah. All right. Go ahead. Yeah, I think so. He says, you guys have been tremendously helpful thus far, especially with sufficient and necessary assumption questions. I almost never get those questions wrong. Thanks to the advice you offer. Exclamation. Boom. Point. Sweet. Thanks, Eric. The good question. Wow. Yeah, that was awesome. And, uh, I, I definitely learned. I mean, I'm going to just, just parrot all of what we just said. Hear that siren? Yeah. That's the loud ass side. They have loud sirens here in Belgium. Hmm. Yeah. It's because everybody's drunk off of the Belgian beer. They have to make the sirens extra loud. I think. <laughs> Do you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Hi, Nathan and Ben. Please do not mention my name. Of course, I love the podcast. I took the June 2016 LSAT, which did not go well. But I applied to schools in New York with a mediocre score. Hmm. I believe I could improve the LR section since I was reading the question stem first, which is obviously a horrible thing to do. Uh, Yeah, I agree. Um, I am a foreign attorney and English is not my first language. I am 29 years old. I have applied to both JD and LLM programs in New York. I have been admitted to good, but not great schools for both programs. The following is my dilemma. And I hope you could advise me on this. And then we have some bullets. I have a cost effective LLM option with a scholarship that would give me a reasonable shot at the New York bar exam in a year. This option will cost me around 30K in tuition. Next bullet. JD option, without a scholarship, this option will cost me around 160K in tuition. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're going to go ahead and dismiss option two out of hand. Well, and you also got to keep in mind, it's 160K in tuition plus... Three years of school, right? LLM is only a year. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And when, when, uh, so this is at the end, it says that we get best regards LLM. So we're going to call this, uh, correspondent LLM. Yeah. Um, when LLM says that would give me a reasonable shot at the New York bar exam in a year, what do you think they're talking about there? Cause I think they're talking nonsense. Yeah, I don't I don't get that actually at all. Either you have well, a chance to take it or you don't, right? You're either certified to take the New York bar exam or you're not. And if you're a foreign attorney and if you're in an LLM program that certifies you to take the New York bar exam, then you that's that's the on the obvious route. I mean, employment considerations aside, 
if all you're trying to do is pass the New York bar, then you need a program that is going to certify you to take the New York bar. Yep. And it's not like, I mean, people think it's hilarious. Is it not hilarious that people think that the school actually does something to help you pass the bar? Uh, yeah. Cause yeah. <laughs> as far as, as far as I know, that is not a thing. Like the school doesn't actually help you to pass the bar. No, now, it the started to be a standards thing. Matter. Right. It started to be a thing for some of these lower tier law schools, but that's because they only have 20, 30% bar passage rate. And all of a sudden they're crying. They're like, like, Oh shit, we yeah. got to start working on that. Yeah. Yeah. But that's rare. Yeah. That's the exception. Yeah. Um, and, and no, you do have to look at the bar passage rate of these different programs, but if you're admitted already to this JD program, you know, uh, well though, because it's going to cost 160,000 for, for LLM to go to that JD, that probably means that like LLM is kind of just squeaking into that JD, Mm -hmm. which means if they have a 60% bar passage rate or something, then you got to put LLM kind of less than 60%. Yep. If you're paying full price. Yeah. You, you, if you're playing, if you're paying full price, then you are, you, you're more the, likely whatever to be, their numbers are. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're more likely to be on the failing side. Yeah. Um, Cause 40% fail, which is by the way, horrible. So <laughs> also by the way, super common. Yeah. 40% fail is way better than UC Hastings was this last time around. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just laughing because it reminded me of your your favorite friend, your favorite dean, or whoever that guy is. Yeah, I'm gonna continue shitting on my alma mater until things change. <laughs> the whipping will continue until morale improves. <laughs> Sorry, what is it? The lashing, the lashings will continue. I don't until know. It's all improves. good. We don't do any. Yeah, we, I, we're not correct on this show for anything. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Of these first two options, it seems pretty clear that the 30K LLM and then sit for the bar. Yeah. Wow. That's a better option. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, this is like, you know, this three. is actually like multiple choice. So we have four options here. It's kind of like LSAT India where they only give you A through D <laughs> and, and A is so much better than B that we have to get rid of B, even if A is not correct. Right. And yeah, B has been eliminated from contention and, um, also, I would like to compliment LLM on his or her uh, English. I mean, I'm a foreign attorney and English is not my first language, period. I am 29 years old, period. Yeah. <laughs> I have applied to both JD and LLM programs in New York, period. This is good writing. Yeah, it is. Um, it's strong. LLM needs to come and, and offer advice to people who write emails in America. Pretty much everybody. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> people that are U.S. undergrads and native English speakers <laughs> that don't write nearly as well as LLM writes. Yeah, I could shit on some of our earlier correspondence that we already read today, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm feeling generous <laughs> with my Belgian beer in hand. All right, number three. No, this retake is the C, LSAT. C, C. Oh, C. <laughs> Choice C. Thank you. Choice C. Retake the LSAT so that I could get into a better G. A JD program with a scholarship in parentheses. Eh, all right. That's, that's two different considerations there. I don't think getting into a better, it depends again, if, are we talking about employment or are we talking about passing the bar? Because LLMs really do need to be worried about passing the bar. 
Yeah. I mean, again, to go back to UC Hastings, but there was an LLM program at Hastings when I was there that was basically unconscionable. I mean, they were admitting people that based on their English had no chance of passing the California bar exam. Yeah. And just taking their money basically. Ooh. Yeah. And so <clears throat> I'm not sure why LLM cares about getting into a better GD JD program, but I definitely agree with the retake the LSAT and get a scholarship. I mean, then that becomes a whole different deal. Yeah. Potentially, potentially. Yeah. Okay. Um, D, start the LLM just in case, but continue prepping for the December 2017 LSAT and reapply to Columbia and NYU. I refuse to, play, uh, to pay Columbia and NYU's price tag to any other JD program in New York. Even Columbia and NYU prices are not justified, in my opinion. Okay, so we've got A, B, C, D. We already got rid of B. And then... Now we get a little more information though. Yeah. So <clears throat> ideally I want to work in a big law firm. However, if I cannot work in big law, it will not be the end of the world. I would be perfectly fine to be employed in the field of compliance or in the legal department of a reputable company. Given the options I have listed above, including my career goals, what would be your recommendation? Best regards, LLM. By the way, um, just a side note here, LLM would be really helpful if we knew what LSAT score you got. Uh, yeah. LLM says, I applied to schools in New York with a mediocre score. This is a subjective term and you know yeah. I hear it all the time. People are like, oh, I did so awful in my first test. And I say, well, what did you get? Oh, it just was really bad. I don't even want to say it. And I'm like, okay, what was it? And they're like, 158. I'm like, um – that's actually not too bad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, it was a 143 or it was a 169 in their, in their minds. It makes it, a big difference. Yeah. So where are you at? Are you even close to getting into Columbia and NYU? I don't think we have any clue. So. Yeah. It, Maybe we could provide a range of options depending on what LLM's LSAT score is. We could just set some, like if it's one. If it's 145, 155, or 165. Yeah, I guess I'm wondering, though, if we could avoid the, the scores altogether because if... <laughs> Just do the LLM. Yeah. like it's a, <laughs> Don't even fuck with it. Yeah, it's a year yeah. of her, his or her life. I feel like... It seems just so much better in so many ways. Um, I mean, Although... I, yeah. Better LSAT score, maybe better scholarship for the LLM? Yeah. I mean, I don't know Do if they I've look heard at people LSAT getting a full ride. Well, I don't know. I mean, why are you getting a scholarship? Maybe from her previous... Work experience. Law school Whatever experience. else. Yeah. I mean, yeah. she went to law school somewhere. Yeah. Um... I'm guessing India on some of the syntax because there, I, I skipped over some of the slightly clunky syntax in, in some of it, but, uh, I, yeah, I would say of these four, I don't hate retake the LSAT because it's like, if you retake the LSAT, get a better score, get better scholarships, get better options, 
that doesn't seem like any problem at all. Yeah, either you retake it and it doesn't go much better and then you know that you've got to go with the LLM or it does. In which case, all you lost is time, really. Yeah. I I don't like start the LLM just in case. Yeah, I don't understand like that. You're, you're paying tuition. I mean, that's if you're in a hurry in your life, which we get, you know, I'm 29 years old, which <laughs> people think that 29 years old is old. Yeah. And they don't realize that they have their whole life ahead of them at 29. Um, so, yeah, I, I would not start the LLM just in case. I would not just go ahead and pay full price for a JD. I would consider retaking the LSAT if you think that it's going to get you a full ride somewhere. I would also... I don't hate... I mean, I do hate thirty thirty thousand dollars is a lot of money. I mean, <laughs> thirty grand is a, lot, a decent amount of money. Yeah, and you know, it's like cost effective LLM with a scholarship. But okay, but what are your job prospects? Even if you do pass the New York bar, the New York bar is not a not a joke, right? What that's probably the second hardest state bar. Yeah, California, New York. Yeah, it's up there. So, yeah, so. I, I would be looking closely at what are your actual bar passage chances. Getting certified for the bar is one thing, and that is definitely what you're paying for with an LLM. But what are your chances of actually passing that exam? That's a that's a totally different issue, and I, I think you got to look close at that. Yeah, I agree. If you want to work in big law, I mean... That's a, that's kind of a problem, right? Ideally, I want to work in a big law firm. Wow. So wait, when does the uh, when does the um, LLM program start? August, right? Um, I think the Hastings one was on a usual, uh, typical like law school schedule. Yeah, so that's probably why she's asking start the LLM just in case. So I wonder if she should defer that. If she can, that would give her a year. Even if, even if not, I mean, defer. If they, if they admitted you this year, they're what they're going to not, they're going to not admit you next year. Yeah. I mean, especially because it's not really that hard to get a couple more LSAT points. And if you get a couple more LSAT points, then now you're guaranteed that they're going to admit you. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I don't, I really don't like the start the LLM just in case. Uh, I do want look at look closely at the look closely at your own personal bar passage chances. Um, the ideally, I want to work in a big law firm thing. I mean, a lot of times you just have to go to a big. You got to go to a big law school to get into a big law firm. Mm-hmm. There's like not really another way. It, it depend some firms, I'm sure there are New York firms that are only going to hire you if you went to Columbia and NYU. Yeah. I mean or Harvard or Stanford or Yale or whatever, but uh, is that LLM, you know, ask your LLM program they need like do do those LLM programs? I mean, we don't know even what school or anything, right? Yeah. But can they introduce you to someone who 
is a recent alum of this LLM program who now works in big New York law firm. Yeah. If they can't, <laughs> that's a big problem. <laughs> if they can't, then it's not a thing. Yeah. And so like people, people are definitely conflating issues, right? They're, they're like thinking, oh boy, all I got to do is pass the New York bar exam. <laughs> New York bar exam and job in a big law firm. Boy, those are far apart. I mean, one is necessary for the other, mm-hmm. but one is certainly not sufficient for the other. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I, I think you got to ask more questions. I'm, I would love to get, wouldn't you love to get follow-up correspondence from LLM? Yeah. Know what happened. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Right back in. Let us know uh, what you think, or please give us some clarification about what we just talked about. We'd love to help you a little bit more if we can. Yeah. One more. I got, I got time for one more. Sure. Yeah. One more. Okay. Yep. So, hi, I want to start by saying you guys do a phenomenal job with the podcasts. Thanks. The content that you guys put out supplemented with a prep course and the power score books helped me achieve a 165 on the February LSAT and hopefully around a 170 on this past June LSAT. Fingers crossed. My question regards the role that my undergrad GPA will play in the admissions process. I graduated from the University of Connecticut with a BA in economics and business this past May with a final GPA of 355. It might sound like I would be in a decent position, but I retook a total of five classes. Mm, I don't know what LSAC is going to do with those. I know what they're going to do. What are they going to (laughs) do? They're going to give the original grade. They're they're not, they don't. The, they don't everybody mess. always gets screwed when they retake classes. That, that always hurts your GPA, in my experience. Or it just doesn't help, you mean? No, I mean, it, this correspondent thinks that they have a 3.55. Yeah, yeah. The LSAC is going to say less because of all these retakes. They're just going to go back to the original scores. I'm pretty sure I've never seen anybody get away with retaking classes and getting a better grade. Yeah. So here, let's read a little bit further. And then, um, so during my sophomore year, I struggled academically due to some personal hardships, death of my uncle, who essentially played a father figure in my life, along with working my first full-time job. Uh, yeah, that sounds rough. Though I cannot place full blame on these events, I ended up ended up getting an F, D plus, C minus, <laughs> and two Cs during this time period. Yeah. That's tough. I understand. Sounds like my transcripts. Uh, oh, good. I understand that in order to get into a competitive law school, I needed to turn things around, and I did so by getting on the dean's list every semester thereafter. Well, that's good. Nice. Yeah. Um. Well. Okay. Anyways, that being said, do you guys think that law schools will take my situation into account if I wrote about it in my personal statement? Yeah, they'll take it into account. Obviously, my LSAC GPA is not going to be a 3.55, but rather somewhere around a 3.3, a 3.4 due to those courses that I retook. I'm afraid that a relatively competitive law school, such as Boston College, my number one choice, will focus primarily on what my LSAC GPA is rather than on what it should have been. (laughs) Yes. Yes, they will. Your LSAC GPA is what matters. Yep. Everybody has these same sob stories. I get, hey, your uncle was really important to you, I know. But the grades are what the grades are. Your your LSAC GPA is what it is. 
they're going to make an index calculation. They're not even looking at your GPA and your LSAT score individually. They are looking at your index number, which is a uh, whatever uh, a combination of your LSAT and your LSAC GPA, and they are looking at that one number when they make their first when when they decide who they're going to start looking at first. They're looking at your index number. And so, yeah, everybody's got all these stories, but they're looking at your index number. And yes, your LSAC GPA is what matters. Yeah. Um, I was just curious. I'm looking at the, uh, I'm looking at the. You're going to go in and look at the LSAC or the, uh, the index yeah, formula bre- for Boston College? I'm breaking our nice. rules here, but. Uh, uh, no, that's not a rule. That's awesome, dude. Do it. So if you end up with a 3.3. GPA and a 168 on the June LSAT, you have a 86 to 96 percent chance of getting into Boston College. Why the hell is Boston College your number one choice? Yeah, with those numbers, you should be shooting for. Let me. I'm going to sort this LSAT. GPA calculator by likelihood from low to high. And then go to like look at something where you have like a 30 or 40 percent chance. Of yeah. In. Yeah. 30 or 40. So your first school, um, Vanderbilt, great school, um, Southern California, Texas, all these schools. And this is just going up. You have a good chance of getting into George Washington, Emory. I, um, yeah, I would reconsider recons- your your goals based on whatever you get in June. But we already know that – who is this? Zach has a 165 on record, right? Yeah, yeah. If I change um, this to 165, well, he still has a 50-50 shot at Boston. Oh, wait, hold on. Yeah, I mean with a one oh. – no, he still has a hundred percent. Like it's still at eighty six to ninety six with a one sixty. Which is the highest? That's the highest they, they even go. Yeah, I mean, maybe he's looking. He's maybe targeting Boston because he wants the scholarship, which would be a very reasonable position to take. Sure, but even with like, a, I want to stay in Boston and I want to get a full ride. Yeah. So BC is my first choice. So yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Anyways. Um, I think you're going to do well. I think you're going to do fine. I think that you want to explain yeah. your GPA because they need to understand what the heck happened that semester. But other than yeah. that, I, I don't know. I, it seems like you're in a solid position. Yep. Yep. Uh, anything else you want to talk about here? No. Just keep keep going, I think. Okay. I also wanted to write about the hardships of being an immigrant from Poland, being the first in my family to go to college, and my experience interning for a lawyer. But I feel as if these topics would dilute, overshadow the importance of my struggles during sophomore year. Okay. Now I want to talk. I mean, first of all, it's not your personal statement. It's not a personal statement to say my uncle died and and I, that's why I have bad grades. Yeah, that's an addendum. That's not a personal statement. That's an addendum to your personal statement. That's an addendum to your application to explain why your grades are not as good as they could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, being an immigrant from Poland could be a diversity statement, could also very well be your personal statement. Immigrant from Poland, first in your family to go to college, interning for a lawyer, all that shit could be your personal statement. 
Yeah, although I think each one of those would just be a personal statement, right? Like you don't want to try to mix this all right. into one. Otherwise, you're trying to do too much and your personal statement right. will be too high right. level and not dig into the details. People want details. Yeah, you don't want to muddy it too much. You have to tell them a story. Mm-hmm. You only have two pages to tell them like a story. So you want to keep it clean and short. Um, but I would not – I don't. I just don't think the personal statement needs to be related to your grades at all. Yeah. Bitching about your grades in your personal statement is not putting your best foot forward. I don't think your uncle's death – I mean – that said, you probably could write a beautiful personal statement about your uncle and how he was so important to you or whatever. But if you're trying to use that as a way of of like explaining away your bad grades, I don't think that's a personal statement. Personal statement is why you, why are you going to law school? It's not, oh, my grades sucked because of some bad shit that happened to me. Yeah. And the addendum could be really straightforward. My uncle, who was like a father figure to me, passed away during my sophomore year. I got these grades. That's reflected in my LSAC GPA, which is a 3.3 or whatever. Um, Without this, if we calculated it, it would be a this. Yep. And you don't even have to like – it's not even a calculation you have to make. You can point to your actual calculation that the school gave you. And say, hey, the school gave me a three five five when I retook because you classes. retook all of that. Yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. And you're done. Just stick to the facts, and then that will explain the odd semester. The other thing that's nice about this is it's just one semester, so um, I think yeah, people will wash it away pretty easily. It's when yeah. it's spread it's out your... that it's a problem, right? And it's not your uncle's story; it's your story. I mean, you can absolutely write about that in one sentence. Just your uncle was a father figure to you. He died. This happened. Here's what my GPA was with the retakes. Mm-hmm. That's fine. That's the addendum. Um, immigrant from Poland, first in my family to go to college. That does sound like a diversity statement. Just make sure but you actually also, have something to say there. I, I just um, – Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I think people can – Say, oh, I fit into this box or this box that we like to talk about. Yeah. But was being an immigrant from Poland really a struggle for you? I, I don't want to diminish that experience, but sometimes I think, especially uh, when you're not the person immigrating, um, like, what do I mean by well, that? Like, he says he he says the hardships of being an immigrant from Poland. I guess what I'm thinking is a I mean, lot of times. I mean, I read it as first generation from Poland. I think if you're first generation from Poland, that's going to be pretty pretty solid. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about people who their their parents immigrate, and maybe they yeah, they immigrate. Your parents immigrated from Poland, and you grew up in Boston. Or even if you were like public schools. two or three, right? Like that's not you're not really doing it true true yeah baby immigrating from poland i mean unless your parents like don't speak english at all anyway yeah be careful make sure that that is really uh, i mean first and first to go to college might actually be a better yeah a better uh story to tell and, and you can weave statement. in the whole immigrant thing that's why they didn't go to sure college. anyways yeah yeah mm-hmm. thank you zach yeah good questions um did you have anything else nathan sorry i didn't mean to cut you off there no, I think that's awesome. Thanks, Zach, for writing. Thanks, everybody, for uh, writing into the show. I'm I'm really sorry that we 
uh, we still we've we we cut into it today. We'll be back uh, again, hopefully. Ben, we're gonna do it in a week. Yeah, yeah, Wednesday. Okay, I don't know where I'm gonna be on Wednesday, but I will. Uh, or yeah, Wednesday. I mean, maybe we can even bump it up. It depends on what my travel schedule it is. But uh, somewhere in Switzerland, you might hear yodeling in the background of next episode. <laughs> cool. As always, you can email us at help at thinkinglset.com or tweet us at thinkinglset.com. Uh, we're always uh, ready and willing to take your questions. So thanks a lot. Next episode, episode 100. Yeah. I think we're probably going to do nothing special for the episode <laughs> based on our current lack of no, planning. On no, we episode. won't do anything special. Just don't die between now and then. <laughs> That's true. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thanks, Ben. Yep. I got to go. I got a student. I'll sure. talk to you later. See you. Bye. All right. Bye.